I don't know about you, but I'm glad they cut off the hula dancing so we didn't have to live through that again. But it was, uh, it is very exciting. Next weekend, next weekend, Clubhouse Kids will begin gathering on the lower level. And I know our five-year-olds through our fifth graders are very excited about getting back together. How do I know? Movie night on Friday night. How many of you were out on Friday night or saw that broadcast out there. I'm sure a few people put it on Facebook, but the whole backfield, including the parking lot, was filled with cars, and the parents could not contain the kids, and it was so neat to see them running and chasing each other. Even saw a few adults doing that, tackling each other in the field, and then they got up and sanitized, but it was all okay. It was all safe, but it let us know. It let us know that it's time for us to be back out together. In fact, it's way past time, and so I welcome those of you that are here and those of you that are watching on TV. Someone said to me this morning, when do you think it'll be back to normal? And I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear my heart on this. This world will be back to where it should be when Christians get out and continue sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's time to come home. And I look forward to seeing you the next three weeks as we've got graduation weekend, as we've got the mud fest out there in the back, the mess fest. It's going to be just a great time, a safe place. There's no place safer than to be with the people who love you and are very concerned for you and will do their best to make sure that you stay healthy. So with all that said, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as we continue this series that we're in, More Like Jesus, and we're talking today about being one in spirit. Now, how many of you have mistakenly turned your TV on at five in the evening, hoping to catch a glimpse of the weather, and you've seen Kentucky's governor on the TV, right? That's what we did the other day. I forgot all about those things. I'm usually in my car when that comes on. I didn't know that they took a whole hour of news for that. And I was expecting to see the weather. The girls were right there with me, wanting to know what the weather was going to be. And there was the governor. And they noticed something for the first time. They noticed the translator. They noticed the person over to his side, right? And they were impressed by her animation, right? When the governor got louder, she became more what? More expressive in her sign language. When he was quiet and more serious, her facial uh, structure changed and, and the way that she signed was more intense. I pointed out to the girls that she was to stick straight to the script. Whatever the governor said right, she was to say, not add a word, not take a word away, but to say exactly what he said. Now, in some ways, it was if the translator and the speaker become one. Now, I want you to think about this. If you look closely, this is what you see with Jesus and God, right? When Jesus walked this earth, Jesus was translating God all the time. When he got louder, when God got louder, Jesus got louder. When God was more intense, Jesus was more intense. When God gestured, Jesus gestured. He was so in sync with the Father that Jesus could say, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, 
The Son does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. They were one. They were one in mission. They were one in voice. They were one in mind. They were one in heart. They were one in purpose. And they were one in spirit. And so in John chapter 17, verse 22, we find that God desires this same oneness that he had with Christ. He desires that same oneness with you and with me. So much so that Jesus prayed this prayer while he was here. Look at verse 22. I, Jesus said, I, Jesus, have given them the glory that you, Father, gave me that they may be one as we are one. Now, Jesus said this prayer out loud. He said it in the presence of people. He said it in the presence of believers. I in them and you, Father, in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, in Scripture, Jesus draws for us four, several others, but we're going to look at four word pictures to describe this oneness that God desires to have with every believer, beginning with you and me. The first is of a vine and a branch. If you flip back just a couple chapters to John 15, verse 5, you see there that God wants me God wants you to be as connected to him as a branch is to a vine. Now, this is probably the simplest of all the analogies that Jesus uses. We're all familiar with vines, whether it is a poison ivy vine that we mistakenly get into when we're clearing the fence row, right? You're pulling those vines out. Maybe you have a grape arbor in your backyard and you see the vine there. Maybe you're a city person, and so the only vine that you see is when you go up to Huber's, to the winery, and you go out and they take you a tour and they show you the, the uh, vineyard out there. Kids, inside your bags, I've noticed you've gotten all of those contents out. They gave you enough coloring pages to draw for a three-hour sermon. Luckily, we've only got about 15 more minutes to go. Everybody cheer out there. But on that piece of paper, you're going to see at the top something that looks like a vine. It's going to be this leafy thing. I want you to draw your own vine, and I want you to encourage the adults sitting next to you to do the same thing. I, please, do it with me right now. I want you to draw a vine. It's very simple to draw. It's just a squiggly line. And I want you to keep adding squiggly lines to that. But when you add those squiggly lines, I want you to start at the bottom of the first line that you drew and then branch off because that's the way branches grow from a vine, right? You don't keep a vine in a box and then attach, or a, a branch in a box and then attach it to the vine when you decide you want grapes, right? The branch grows from the vine. Now I want you to think about your life as a branch that was created to be connected to God to grow from him, to grow with him, to be so connected to him that his DNA flows through you. 
I go back to that box. How many of us have, have segregated our lives from him, our relationships, our marriages? And we wonder why we're not producing the fruit that we would like to have. It's like the gardener that when he decides he wants fruit, grabs the, grabs the branch out of the box and attaches it and somehow thinks that he's going to get fruit. We must be as connected to the vine of Christ and God as a branch is. The whole time receiving nutrients, the whole time receiving the DNA code that it takes to produce fruit. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me... You can do nothing. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have said nothing of worth, right? Because we can produce all kinds of things, can't we? I mean, there are people who are in love and get married and have relationship outside of being connected to God, right? There are people who raise children. There are people who create cures to diseases. There are people who can clone sheep and and dogs, why you would want to have two of those ugly things looking the same, I don't know. But people can do it, or can they? Or can they? See, Jesus said nothing. You can do nothing because there is nothing in our lives manufactured Nothing exists without him. Now, whether you give him credit or not, there is no love without God. God is the one who wrote the DNA code for love. There's no marriage without God. Yes, a governor, yes, someone else can sign a piece of paper that says you're married, but there is no marriage outside of the definition that God gave. Why? Because God created it, not us. There's no human life or animal life without God choosing it. There's no salvation without God. And so when we're detached from him and we wonder why there's no real fruit that he describes, fruit of substance, we need to recognize that we must be connected to him. And so the more I lean into his, that connectedness I have with him, it should be harder for us to see where one begins and the other ends. It should be seamless. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Jesus said, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Whatever you wish. Now that's a broad statement, isn't it? How many of us get out our lists and we start asking and then we wonder, why? Why hasn't this happened? I'll tell you what, I asked for something so long. I asked for something for 15 years. And when I got it, it took less than a day to go back to God and say, I am so sorry I asked. Here's the deal. Ask whatever you wish is conditioned by the reality that when we ask, we're so connected to God that what we ask is what he desires for us to begin with. 
Does that make sense? You see, we should be so connected with him that our thoughts, they should be in line with his thoughts. The things that we desire should be in alignment with the things that he gives us and wants to give us. Here's a couple of examples of what that ask might look like in your life. It was great to see more and more of the teens able to get out of their houses and to be out last night. They were so respectful, but they they filled the first three rows, right, and and had their distance between each other. But I said to the teens, here's what an ask might look like in your life when you're connected to the vine. Right? Every one of us, teens and adults alike, we want to have relationship with other people. Just like our Father God, our Creator, we were created for relationship. And so we desire that. And so instead of saying, God, give me friends, we should be saying, Father, I want to have relationship with other teens, but but not at the cost of walking in a way that doesn't reflect my connectedness with you. Father, show me other teens in my youth group, in my church that believe what I believe. Show me other teens. Oh, but I'll save this person. I thought about that. Those of us as teens who set out to save an unbeliever by being friends with them, you can't save an unbeliever by sitting there at a party underage drinking with them. You can't save another person by taking your clothes off with them as a believer. Oh, they may have a spiritual experience, all right, but, but it's not the one that God wants. Will you show me the heart of those I seek to befriend? And you know what? He'll show you if you'll open your eyes. Adults, Father, your word says that you'll go before me and protect me, right? His word says that over and over again. I trust you with that, and I ask that you give me courage to step out and honor you with my faithfulness, even though there's a risk. My friends, we take a lot of risks. We take a lot of risks, but the only risks that we seem to want to take these days are the ones that require no courage at all, that require no faith at all. And there is no oneness with Christ in this. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, a second word picture is used to describe the oneness that God desires with me. God uses the placing of his presence in the temple to depict the intimacy, the oneness that he wants to have with his people, the oneness of his presence with us. God's plan then, God's plan is to take up residence inside of me just as he resided in Solomon's temple. And and you may not be familiar with Solomon's temple. You can look it up in any history book, especially the one in the Old Testament. You can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and you'll see that Solomon was the one charged by God to build a temple for him. God said, I want my presence to be with you every once in a while, all the time. I want my presence to be with you all the time. And so Solomon, you are the one who will build me a temple. And just like God provided all the resources when he gave us the green light to add on here, 
King David, Solomon's dad, presented Solomon with everything that they needed to build this magnificent temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as Solomon dedicated the temple to God, it says, The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and God said in verse 16, listen to these words, I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Always. He sees and his very presence, the very core of who he is, his heart, will always be there. What's that mean? God's not a visitor. God is a residence. He doesn't come and go but he, and appear and disappear, but he's always available. He's always Present. I love Psalm 121. I memorized it when I was in the third grade. I lift my eyes into the hills uh, from whether it's my help come from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And my favorite part, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. <laughs> He's always there. He's always there. He says, my eyes will be open in verse 17. My ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Now, here's what's important. In the same way that God chose Solomon's temple, symbolic of his presence forever, literally in that temple, what does he say? He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Kids, on your drawing, there's another box there. And I want you to draw the place where God lives. Adults, it probably wouldn't hurt for you to do the same. Because there's this misunderstanding that the only place that God is is contained in these walls. Now the problem is, is that we've used that as an excuse today to say, oh, God's not contained in the building. He's right here. So we'll just worship him wherever we want to. The problem is that's not what God commanded you to do. The God commanded you to not forsake the gathering. God uses the analogy of our body being a temple, not as a warning, not just as a warning to not abuse our bodies, right? To not put unholy things inside of them, which we shouldn't. But there's a deeper meaning here. Why wouldn't we do those things? Because God is here. It should make a difference in the places that we go. It should make a difference in the things that we say and do, the things that we expose our temple, our hearts to. Because he loved us so much. Do you know how he abides in us? He abides in us through our baptism. And why do we have baptism? Because Jesus Christ laid down his life on the cross. He was buried for our Sins, And that's why we're buried in a watery grave of baptism, to leave behind our sin-ridden life and to rise like he did from the grave. I've often described the spirit as being like my conscience on steroids, right? We've all got a conscience, right? And you remember back before that conscience was, was pushed down. But you remember when you'd turn the channel on the TV when mom and dad were out of the house, and, and the picture of the scantily clothed woman was on there, right? Uh, uh, what's that uh, 
Oh, I was trying to think of that, that show the other day uh, where you had all the lifeguards on the beach, you know, and they're, yeah, Baywatch, right? And the Baywatch is on. All of a sudden, your heart begins to race, right? You know. You know that's something. Now, when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, it's like that on steroids, except it's not just when you're doing something that you shouldn't do. When the warning light comes on, but it's when you're driving down the road, right? And a person comes to your mind and you realize, oh, that's God reminding me that I didn't see Mike last week. I need to give Mike a call. And so what do we say? Oh, God, I'll get with you later. No. It's called quenching the spirit. You pull over to the side of the road. You turn your flashers on and you text Mike or you call Mike. You say, hey, Mike. And what you find out is that God had a purpose for putting that person in your mind. You're sitting there on the weekend. That's why I don't carry cash anymore. But you're sitting there on the weekend, right? And all of a sudden, someone makes a plea, and you're like, God says, okay, get that $100 bill out that you got for your birthday. And you're like, no, no. Are you going to quench his spirit? Are you going to give? Because the times that I've gotten out that $100 bill... He's restored it over and over again. That's why we went to Rebel Give, so you can take your credit card out and do that when he prompts you. But you know what I'm talking about. Or do you? Or do you? Does God reside in you? Have you let him in? Or have you stopped listening to him? Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Are you at peace with knowing that God lives inside of you? Are you fearful because of his presence? God sees it all. Does that change the way kids that we love, our sisters or our brothers? The biblical analogy of marriage is the third picture that God gives us to describe the oneness that he envisions us to have with him, right? God is as intimate with us as a bridegroom is to the bride. In Revelation 21.2, we're referred to by Jesus as the bride of Christ, individually and collectively as a church. We are to be united with him as a man is with a woman. We've made vows to him, right? The first vow that you made to God isn't, I'll promise to be good if you'll do this for me. You may have tried that one, but it doesn't work that way. The first vow that we make to God is what? That profession of faith. I believe in you. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept him in my life as Savior, but also Lord, that's a commitment. You're Lord, I'm not. And God has made vows and promises to us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. As you remain in me, so I remain in you. I am with you even to the end of the age. Anxiety is such a terrible thing, especially when I see it in kids. You see, that wasn't a fit. That's, that's anxiety. And so why don't we pray for Brooklyn right now? Lord, I thank you for sweet little Brooklyn's heart. 
And whatever it is, Lord, I know that at different stages of our life, we go through separation, anxiety. And so when one of us gets up, Lord, our little ones get, get nervous and get afraid. I pray that you'll calm her heart and that as she grows older, that she'll be able to understand your presence there to calm her. And Lord, for those that are watching right now that, that have anxiety in their lives too as adults, I, I pray, Father, that um, you would give us the tools and that you'd equip us, Father, to be able to um, contain that, to be rid of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, from the very beginning, God describes marriage as two becoming one. Paul reinforces this when describing our relationship with God in Ephesians 5.31. He says, for this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. One flesh. Flesh. This is the seriousness of marriage. God's design is not that it be David here and Sarah here and we cohabitate. We share resources. We each go to work and we live our individual lives as before. God created this oneness to occur. It happens when the marriage is consummated. Some of you have already consummated your marriage without even making the covenant before God, right? You're married according to God's design. And what that means is that there is a part of you that you can never get back from that other person. No matter how hard you try, there's a part of you that will always belong to that other person. Paul describes it as a profound mystery when he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, healthy relationships have this sense of remaining. The husband remains in the wife and she remains in him. He shares the depth of his heart with her, his body with her, and she with him. There's no room, no room for any other. There's a tenderness and an honesty. There's an ongoing communication. The psalmist wrote, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Do you know that oneness with Him? That your joys are shared only with Him first. We go to him with our hurts, but we always go. And as we go, that oneness only intensifies. Now, you've met couples, haven't you, that have been together so long they begin to look like each other, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody's looking at each other. Not me. Not me, but it's true. I, I see it more in dogs and their masters than I do, Right? You ever, especially those pugs, they look a lot like their owners a lot of times. You know I'm telling the truth. This is God's desire for our oneness with him. The more that we are connected with him, the more that we look like him, and we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory 
are being transformed into his likeness with every increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus said to the Father, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. King David described it this way in the message version. I'm an open book to you, God. You know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave. You know when I get back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start the first sentence. I look behind me, and you're there. I look up ahead of you, of me, and you're there. And then he says, this is too much. <laughs> it's too wonderful. I can't take it all in. God is as near to us as a branch is to a vine. He's as present with us as God was present in the temple. And he's as intimate with us as a husband is to his wife. But there's one more analogy that God uses to describe our oneness with him. And that is the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. God's desire is that we know him the way a sheep knows a shepherd, that we know his voice, that we know his protection, that we know his provision, that we know his care as a sheep knows his shepherd. In the 23rd Psalm, David declared the depth of this relationship with God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. You've heard me say this before. When a man says he's not in want, we should, we should perk up and listen. There isn't a day that I'm not in want, ashamedly. But the Lord's my shepherd, he says. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the way that I should go in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's that mean? His word rides on it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me, your rod and your staff. You know, even when God corrects us, it's comforting because he wants what's best. And I love the pull of his staff when I start getting off the path and he, and he pulls me back in and he lets me know that he still loves me and that he, he wants to care for me and he wants what's best for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows and surely, surely your goodness will come for me and carry me home and I'll dwell in your house forever. Look back with me at John 17 verse 26. As Jesus finishes his prayer for the oneness that he desires that we share with the vine, the spirit that lives within us, the bridegroom, the shepherd. Jesus said to the Father, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, the same love that God has for Jesus, that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Jesus brings us all the way back to this oneness and the reason for it. Why? Does God want to control us? No. If he wanted to control us, he would have created it to be that way. God loves us. God loves us. And as you love the people that you care for, what do you want for them? You want the best. You want 
the best. If there was one thing that I could give my girls as a daddy, it would be my presence with them every minute of the day, right, Mike? To guard them, to watch out for them, to reassure them, to whisper in their ear when some little brat makes fun of them because they're chunky or they're skinny. To say, no, baby, no, that's, you're perfect. You're just the way God created you to be, right? That's what love is, is wanting to be present always. And this is what God's saying to us. <laughs> I want to be as present with you as I have been with Jesus. And Jesus has been as present with God from the very beginning as one can be. They were one. Jesus said, you and me, I and them. It was Jesus' greatest hope for us that we would know God the way that he does. And so I ask you, do you? Do you? And will you? This uh, week I had the privilege of burying yet another World War II veteran. You know, there's only a few left. Ivan was 94. Ivan was 94. Had a full military service there for him at the graveside. Those are the most neat, humbling, and inspiring things. And I hope that the generations to come will continue that as they lay that flag out over the casket, as the bugler plays, as they have a 21-gun salute, and as that flag is presented in this case to his oldest daughter and thanked from the President of the United States with gratitude for his service. But you know, as neat as all of that was, when Ivan passed and I got the call that he wanted me to do his service, the first question from his family was, is Ivan with the Lord? <laughs> is Ivan one with God? And I was able to sit down with him and say, oh, now you know the answer to that. You see, I, some of us think that God's love for us is like the, the daisy that we picked out of the field as a kid and we'd pluck off one one leaf at a time, right, of the bloom, we'd say, he loves me, he loves me not, right? We'd get to the last one, and it lands on that, he loves me not, so we'd find another one, right, until we get to the answer. And some of us have lived our lives that way, wondering, going from daisy to daisy. God loves you so much that he literally came and lived and experienced everything on this earth that you and I could ever think to live, every trial, every temptation. He did so that he could take our sin, the one thing that separates us from his love, and he took it to the cross for us and experienced death, separation from himself, only to rise on the third day so that you and I could have his spirit and his presence in us, if only will accept it. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I think for most of us, we've only scratched the surface of the relationship that you desire that we have with you and that you desire to have with us. A relationship that changes everything about how we experience and live life here. This concept of oneness is so simple, yet it's so complex. We so often see you as one that we come to or that we call on, yet it's in that surrender that you reveal your heart and that 
You want us to abide in you and with you and us, just like Jesus experienced. What a gift. Your ever-abiding presence. And so just as Jesus prayed, Father, we want your love. We want your presence in us, just as you promised. And so I pray today that we'll acknowledge that gift as Jesus did. And that we'll go all in. That we will live boldly in great confidence that you're with us everywhere, every moment. And through your spirit, Father, may the understanding that we lack come. You're so good to us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and that we live. Amen.